And Lord, we pray for this morning. Lord, we pray that your word will confront us, that you will speak the truth to us. Uh, Lord, be with us and teach us. Guide us and direct us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we're working through the book of Daniel. And boy, we get to one of the narratives here in Daniel that there's probably very few greater stories than Daniel chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open it up. Daniel 4, we're going to be walking through this amazing story of King Nebuchadnezzar as he tells it himself to us. So Daniel 4, starting in verse 1, and we'll go through it on the screen as well. This is how, the, how this chapter starts. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Whoa. If you've been paying attention to Daniel so far, this is a big shift in everything. You know, as you go from the first three chapters, and it's all told from the perspective of Daniel and the exiles, and we've heard Nebuchadnezzar speak of Yahweh, but it's this, the God of Daniel. He's, well, this, this is something. It's his pleasure to tell us of the miraculous signs and wonders. Something has dramatically changed, right, in the narrative. Something has dramatically changed in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And the, even to the fact that he felt so strongly, right, that he wanted to speak his own story into the narrative, not let Daniel tell it, not tell the, let the author tell it, but have the author write down it from his perspective. This is going to be a, a unique story. In verse 4, he tells us what happened to him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So Nebuchadnezzar, height of his rule, content and prosperous, one of the most successful kings in human history, right? That's how most historians look at Nebuchadnezzar, arguably the most successful king to ever rule in the the history of humanity, has built everything, nowhere left for him to conquer, nothing left for him to build. The wonders of Babylon in the ancient world were greatly renowned. Everything is his tormented again by a dream. He calls the wise men just like he had done before. He hasn't learned. Eventually, he ends up with Daniel again in the hope of being able to get this dream interpreted. Verse 9, I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous, 
The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. You see this image of a tree. In the middle of everything, at the very center of the earth, this tree, this enormous tree that can be seen from everywhere, sheltering all, providing life for every living creature. I mean, literally the tree of life. This tree provides shelter and provides life for every living creature on the earth. Verse 13. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. Verse 17, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So this opening part of the dream right, is actually a beautiful image of this tree, but this second part right, is when things, really, you can see why he's so terrified the tree is to be cut down, but the trunk is to remain. And clearly, Nebuchadnezzar is identifying himself as the tree. And that makes sense. He just built a golden statue of himself. He would assume everything is about him, and every dream is about him. And even in that last dream he had, the statue and the golden head was of him. And so he's got this image of himself as this tree that provides life and shelter to all, but it will be cut and a stump will remain. And the voice, and that strange voice, jumps in, where it's not talking about a tree anymore, right? And somehow it's speaking about him. Let him, somehow speaks of him. Let him live like an animal. Let him lose his mind for seven years. It's a terrifying voice to jump into the dream. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's the son of man that's standing there. It doesn't sound like it's the angel. Who is it that's even speaking but this is it. This king is going to lose his mind. That the living may know that the most high God is in control of all the nations. Verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. 
The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Verse 23. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. Your majesty, in this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. So we get the confirmation that Nebuchadnezzar is in fact this tree. All right, and that harkens back to chapter 2 and chapter 3, and we, we get this. And because he is, this is the king of all kings. This, is, he, this kingdom he has built is the greatest kingdom to ever have extended. He has his reach over everyone. All the nations gather to him, and he is their focal point, and he provides them everything. But the king will be driven from the people. He will not stay in a position of power. He will lose his mind and he will live as an animal until he acknowledges that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms and he gives them to anybody he wants. God uses who he will use, right? Until Nebuchadnezzar learns this lesson that he is not so great and in fact he is the lowliest and it's God who puts the lowliest in control. And then Daniel gives this final plea to him to do two things. Right? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, if you would just do these two things, do what is right and be kind to the oppressed. If you do these, maybe you will be able to continue on your throne and you will not lose it. It tells you what this king isn't doing. Right? If Daniel has to plead with him, he is not a kind king. He is not doing what is right and he is oppressing the poor. He's oppressing the exiles. And so the question, right, as you read the narrative, we're supposed to wonder, you know, what will Nebuchadnezzar do? If you hear this statement and you're given a way in which to continue in your position of power and authority, will he do this? Will he repent in turn? Will he not? 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, 
as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. He said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. What an image. All of this happens. Twelve months, a year has passed, and he is looking over his city. And really, his statement isn't that preposterous of a statement, right? Isn't this the city I have built? Isn't, look at this kingdom, the peace and prosperity that I have purchased, right, that I have, and that I can provide for these nations, for all people. Look at what my hand has done. And a voice from heaven immediately speaks as his, the, lips are on, or the words are on his lips, and he loses his mind, and he's driven away, right? Just ultimate humiliation. It's not like he was snatched away and just thrown into a field or something like that. No, he was driven away by his own people. They would not have him as their king anymore because he is so, he has lost everything. They drive him away and he has to live like an animal for a set period of time. The seven times, it's, it really is just meant to indicate a, a set period. And it could mean lots of things. It could mean several months. It could be a year. It could be multiple years. But there will be a time where you will live like a beast of the field. And then you will acknowledge who really has the power and control. A complete, utter humiliation for the greatest king who have ever ruled. Right? I mean, to imagine that, you, he has built this kingdom and now to be driven away from it, right? rejected by his people. They don't want him as their king. And he's forced to live a life as an animal in the field. I mean, can you imagine the, the humiliation that would be for the people who see him on a daily basis? Like, do you want to see great King Nebuchadnezzar? Here, come, let's go see him in this field. Look at him. His hair is like, is like a feathers. His claws, his nails have grown, right? Just the utter humiliation of this great king. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand and say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out Excuse me. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven. 
because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow, what a tremendous change. Everything is restored. His sanity is restored. His kingdom is restored to him. He finally makes the most high God his God. Right, because all the way through so far, he'll acknowledge God as the God of Daniel, as the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But now, finally, this is my God. He exalts and acknowledges him. He acknowledges that his dominion is eternal, that Nebuchadnezzar's is not. God's kingdom is forever. He does as he pleases with the powers and the people of the earth. Everything he does is right and all his ways are just. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a tremendous statement. The message of the narrative is really pretty clear, right, as we go through it. And it's an amazing, an amazing narrative. God humbles the proud. And we read the story and really, right, you kind of cheer along. Like, yeah, it's about time. Nebuchadnezzar got humbled. What a terrible, terrible king. Because it's easy to put ourselves, because the, that's what we've been doing all the way through chapters one through three. We put ourselves, we read the story from the perspective of the exile, right? And, and that's an easy position for us. We, we have been reading the story so far from the position of Daniel, which is what the author has intended us to do, right? To think of yourself as Daniel. What would you do in those same situations? What would you do in these situations? And as I read the story, as we read the story, we still want to stay in the position of the exiles looking at Nebuchadnezzar and almost, right, waiting and cheering for his humiliation. Yeah, it's about time someone does something with him, right? Because he's, he's a terrible king. I mean, incredibly successful king. But to the exile, he's the worst. He's proud and he's arrogant. He flies off the handle and all these furies and starts killing people. He's a horrible king. And so when this word comes that he is going to be cut down, all right, right, our heart leaps. And you say, all right, this is good news. I can't wait for him to be brought low. I can't wait for him to learn his lesson. Because this is our, our human experience. This is what we all have as exiles in this world. It's easy for us to look and to see the powers around us and we wait and we hope for the proud to be humbled. Like, oh, and we even pray for it. I, I hope that people get, I hope, right, so-and-so gets humbled. I hope that they learn their lesson. I hope that one day they'll acknowledge God. But the problem with this text, and this is why it changes voice, because it, it won't let us identify with an exile in the story. It doesn't want us the narrator doesn't want me to think of myself as Daniel in this story. Because actually, it's really hard to identify with Daniel. Right? It really is. Daniel's response to the king. How, how, can, he, how can he so fervently desire for Nebuchadnezzar to not be humbled? Right? He's terrified, and he doesn't want this to happen. Right? He says to Nebuchadnezzar, like, if only this was about your enemies, your adversaries, and even tries to give him a way out of being humbled. Right? Just do what's right. Just treat the poor better, and maybe you will continue in your rule. Like, Daniel, 
No, this is the chance we've been waiting for. Like, we want Nebuchadnezzar to be humbled. We want him to lose his power. We want a better king to come up. And even, and this would be better for him too, right? It even says he'll be humbled and then he'll come back. And this, you should pray, right? If I was in Daniel's place, I would be telling Nebuchadnezzar, good news. You're gonna have to endure a period of your life of humiliation, but it's gonna come out better for you. Just embrace it. Get ready for it. But Daniel is just eager for Nebuchadnezzar to even avoid it. It's a perspective I can't even identify with, but I'm not meant to. I'm not supposed to read the story through the eyes of, Nebuch- of Daniel. I'm, suppo- excuse me, I'm supposed to read it through the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. And when I read it through his eyes, the story gets a lot easier to identify with, a lot more uncomfortable, but I can, I can hear it. Because that's what the author wants. It's a switch of a voice that's intended for us to see ourselves in the story. Because the reality is, the story of Nebuchadnezzar is the story of Israel. Israel is meant to see themselves in Nebuchadnezzar. The nation of Israel would hear this story after the exile, and they hear their own story being told of Nebuchadnezzar. In Isaiah 6, 11 through 13, the prophet Isaiah asks God, how long before Israel will listen to God? How long will it be before we will ever listen to the Lord again? And the Lord replies, and he tells him in in Isaiah 6, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. The reader gets this analogy. It gets this dream about Nebuchadnezzar being a stump of its greatness and its glory being cut down. (laughs) This is the story of Israel. They had their moment of glory and greatness and they were cut down. And they were humiliated. They were sent away for a set period of time with very little hope of what glory could ever be restored to them. If they would just humble themselves and acknowledge that God does as he pleases. Right? The reader is meant to identify with Nebuchadnezzar. And that's hard news for us. It goes against my natural heart, right? It goes against what we want. No one likes to be associated with, let alone as a proud dictator. It's the most universally disliked characteristic in people in the world, pride and arrogance. We are so quick to spot it in other people, right? You have people in your life who you know, it's easy to pick out the proud, the arrogant, the boastful. It's easy. Everyone, you don't have to be a Christian to be able to pick out pride in people. It's so easy to see, but it's almost impossible to see it in ourselves. And this narrative forces us to look at the pride in ourselves. We cheer for the proud to be humbled, right? Everyone loves that narrative, 
right? When the high get humbled, we love those stories. We cheer for them, right? We all kind of want that celebrity to be taken down a notch. We want those athletes to fall low. We want our politicians to be humbled. Everyone wants the proud to be humbled. They just don't want it to be them <laughs> themselves, right? Because I'd like, it's better for me when I see someone else humbled than when I get humbled. And some of us have been humbled, never thought it would happen. I never thought we deserved it. We thought they deserve it, and they understand why someone else gets humbled, but would never be able to say that they deserve to be humbled. The greatest problem in this world is not the people around us. It's not our proud and arrogant politicians. That's not our greatest problem. It's not our proud and arrogant celebrities, our proud and arrogant CEOs or bosses or our proud and arrogant parents or church leaders or anyone. Your problem, your greatest problem in life is not other people. Your greatest problem is you. My greatest problem is me. My greatest problem is not my situations, our circumstances. Everyone looks to their circumstances as their problem. Daniel doesn't. He wants Nebuchadnezzar to continue on the throne. Like, no, Nebuchadnezzar should be a problem for you. He just destroyed your homeland. He's taken you away. He's forcing you to worship other gods. Like, he's a problem. Daniel doesn't look at him as a problem. He's fine. He's good. Well, who, what's the problem here? If I can't blame other people for my problems... If I can't point my finger at everyone else and hope that they change and that God changes them so that my life will get better, well, who's left to blame? (laughs) And this is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar has to learn. Pride. My own pride is my greatest problem. That sin, this is sin, pridefulness, arrogance. What's wrong in the world is me. What's wrong in the world is in my heart. We have to ask ourselves these questions then. You know, how big of a problem is this? And there's ways in which we can identify it, right? Do you find yourself always judging others? Is it easy? Does it come naturally to judge people, to look at other people's lives, to look at them and say, oh, I would never do that, right? Or I can't wait for them to get what's coming to them. Do you have a hard time around people who are prideful? Are you easily irritated by arrogant, boastful people? Right? C.S. Lewis gives that as a great test of your own pride and arrogance. Can you coexist with someone who's proud? Right? Who always likes to be the big noise in the party, always likes to talk, always likes to be the one who knows the answer. If you can't be around proud people, the problem is not them. The prob- problem is your own pride, which is in competition with theirs. You don't like to be around them because you want to be the big noise. You want to be the one who everyone looks to. Do you wish for people to fail? Do you even root for it? Do you revel in the failures of others and justify it by saying, well, they're an evil person anyway, right? I'm just asking for justice, right? But you want them to fail. Do you blame other people for your problems, right? Or do you take ownership of it yourself? Lewis also gives this, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity also gives this other test of pride and of, 
of really of loving of your neighbor, in that, you know, do you root for people's failures? When you hear a report, when you hear a story of someone, let's say it's somebody who you really don't care for, right? Or someone who is evil, someone who is bad, right? Genuinely not a good person, right? You hear a bad report. You hear a story of what they have done, and it's, it's bad. It's horrific. All right. And you kind of say to yourself, that sounds about right. I could see them doing that, right? This is the world of Twitter and the news, right? Very, who, pick whoever, right? You hear the story of scandal of, or something terrible that someone has done, and you say, yep, I could totally believe it. But then you hear another story, another report about that incident or about that person, and they say it wasn't true, or they say it wasn't as bad, or what you thought, what you heard wasn't true. He said the test, the real test of our hearts is, do we so quickly dismiss that positive story because we want the negative story to be true? Right? Or do we hold on to those positive stories and wish for them to be true? How far gone is our heart right? when we start to root for failures? We want, Lewis says, right, this is a, you're now wanting evil to become more evil, bad to be even worse. Like we want bad people in the world to be even worse than they are. We want them to be bad. We almost need them to be bad, right? We need the proud and the arrogant to be proud and the arrogant. We need them to fail. Like, why? Right? For ourselves to be right. See, my opinion of them was right all along. I knew they were terrible. I knew that person was bad, right? I knew that this, was, this day was coming, right? And we do this all the time. It doesn't, we don't have to think, it, everyone does it on the political side level, right? Pick your candidate and you say, you just, you just hold on to those negative stories. And when there's a positive story, you just dismiss it out of hand. What was the source? Yeah, whatever. You know, it, I'm going to hold on to these negative ones. But we also do this with our loved ones and, and people close to us, family members, right? people who have hurt us or wronged us. Or you just cling to, you just want them to fail in life, right? If they left you for somebody else, oh, I hope that marriage falls apart too, Right, that sounds about right. They should. That's, that's what I would expect to happen. We just want the world to be bad. <laughs> Wishing and hoping for people to fail. Well, this is our hearts. And it's not a pleasant picture. This is the world, the culture that we live in. And it's where I naturally go. Right, and it gets revealed to me by the book of Daniel when I read the story of Nebuchadnezzar and I want him to be humbled. I don't want to be humbled myself. So what's the solution? The solution for us is the same as it was for Nebuchadnezzar, right? Our greatest hope in this world is not to pray for the humiliation of other people, right? But for our own, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The message of the Bible is an incredibly humbling message. There's this, this story, obviously the story of Nebuchadnezzar is a humbling one, but it pales in terms of the humiliation <clears throat> endured by Jesus, another king, right, who went through a very similar experience, but on a greater, greater scale. A king who had, who could have truly, truly looked over all of creation, right? Nebuchadnezzar looks over a city and says, is this not my world that I have created, right, for my royal residence? A king, Jesus, literally could have looked over the entire world and said, right, is this not mine, home, that I have made for my glory? It's to be my residence, for my majesty. 
He didn't just create the, one of the wonders of the world. He created the world itself. But rather than doing that, right, rather than exalting himself, this king voluntarily humbled himself. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation was not voluntary. Jesus was. Born amongst the livestock, living a life with no roof, with no money, constantly driven away by man. <laughs> right, this is the existence that Jesus has. Everywhere he goes, he gets driven away. Nobody wants him. <laughs> no town wants him to stay. Everywhere, nobody wants him. Constantly driving away the one true king of this world. He took the form of a servant, healed the sick, preached to the poor. All these things that Nebuchadnezzar is Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to do. This is what Jesus does his whole life. He does take after, he does take care of the poor. He heals the sick, even to the point of washing his disciples' feet. Something you never imagined Nebuchadnezzar doing. Becoming a servant even unto death, dying a criminal's death on the cross, even though he had done nothing wrong. And further, unlike Nebuchadnezzar or any king, his humiliation was voluntary. And it wasn't to get rid of the pride for himself, right? Nebuchadnezzar had to go through it to get rid of his pride. That wasn't Christ, for he had no pride, but rather he endured his humiliation so that he could redeem us from our pride. Because the ending of Nebuchadnezzar's narrative is great for Nebuchadnezzar. (laughs) The ending of Christ is the elimination of pride for us and for everyone else. The only king who ever deserved the glory and praise could have rightly exalted himself, lowered himself, so he could lift everyone else up. And not even his own people, because any king would have done that, but to raise up his enemies, right? To die for his enemies, the ones who were rooting for his death and for his humiliation, right? Because many of us go through humiliation or a humbling And we are eager at the end of it, right, to praise the people who are with us in it or who believed in us during our lowest time, who is with me at my lowest. Well, I will raise you back. You could imagine Nebuchadnezzar returning to glory. Daniel, you believed in, right? And he raises Daniel and he continues to exalt Daniel. This king raises up those who were rooting against him, his enemies, not the ones who were with him because nobody was with him. He had no one on his side when he went through his humiliation. This is the good news of the gospel. The whole message of the Bible sums up in this story. And so what does this story do for us? Right, It's a greater story, and the story of Nebuchadnezzar is the same, but it points to Christ, which is much better. And if the story is real of Jesus, then it humbles us. Because in the face of Jesus, I have to come to grips. Right, I have to realize who I really am. In the face of Jesus and what he went through, who he was and what he did, I have to realize that I'm not as great as I like to think I am. I'm just not. I'm not that great. This is the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learns. I'm not powerful. I'm not amazing. There is no reason for someone to love me, to cling to me, I do not have control of my life. I do not have dominion. I do not have this little kingdom that I think I have. I'm not that great. The gospel confronts us with that. Because if I was so great, I could have done this on my own. I could humble myself. 
I could learn my lesson, but I can't. I can't learn my lesson. I will always fill myself back up with myself. Christ had to die for my pride. <laughs> That's embarrassing that the king of the universe had to die for me. But it also tells me, right, in the same breath as while I see that I'm just not that great, I also see that I'm so much more loved than I could have hoped for either or that I ever deserved. Who would die for me? <laughs> A prideful, pride, arrogant, little despot, just like Nebuchadnezzar, if not worse. My kingdom is just smaller, right? But we all do the same things he does and cling to our own little worlds and hold on to him tightly. <laughs> I'm no different than him. Who would ever die for me? Right? Who would ever? The king of the universe died for me. Not because he had to, but because he loved me. So it tells me that I'm not that great, but it tells me I am so loved. Right? Because the measure of my love is by who actually would die for me. <laughs> the king died for me. The king thinks very highly of me. The king has redeemed me. So this changes things. And now I look around me and I can see the truth. All right, I can see the truth. I see the truth about myself and I see the truth about everyone else. Right, I can honestly see people for who they are. And I can see my own pride in the light of the gospel because what, what could ever reveal my pride, right? Only the gospel reveals the proud because otherwise I think I'm just really good. <laughs> or even my efforts to lower myself are just my own pride. Only the gospel can reveal my own pride to myself. So I see myself clearly for the first time that I am so proud, but I am also so loved. And which now enables me to see other people in the same light. I see their pride. I see the problems in me and I see the problems in them. But I also see how loved they are. They are not as important as they think they are. And it could be, any, I can look at anyone in this world. My children, <laughs> the elected officials say, I know they're not as important as they think they are. But I also know that they are more loved than they think they are as well. I see both to be true. And I see that I am in no different state than them. I have the same thing in me that they have. And then I start to root for them instead of root against them. Right? Then I can start to actually have that heart a little bit more in alignment with Daniel's. Right? Where I start to root for people instead of rooting against them. Instead of this pessimism, instead of believing lies about people. Right? Like so much of our world is just filled with lies and pessimism, hopelessness, and wishing people to fail. Well, in the light of the gospel, I see the truth. They are proud and arrogant. But I also know the truth that I am too. And I also know their only hope is Christ. And I know what he thinks of them and what he thinks of me. And I know what he does with me every day. I know what he's doing with them too. And I can root for them. I can hope for them. I can go through life seeing people's sins for what they are. Right? The truth of that. Because you don't have to get to the other extreme where you just say everyone's fine, everyone's loved. I don't have to, look, you have sin, I got sin, I can't point out yours. No, I can point out your sin. Because I know your sin really well because it's mine too. Right? And I'm very gifted at spotting pride in people because I am proud. Right? I, I can see it in you. But I can also apply the gospel to it as well, just the same way I need to do it to me. And I see that in others. 
So it helps us to live this life of truth and of hope instead of of lies and of pessimism because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Right? The true hope, true hope of the gospel. But it only comes, right? It only comes through that humbling of oneself. Right? Some of you have gone through it. Right? (laughs) You know this story, right? You know this narrative really well. Like I was humbled. And that's when I found, right, life. The greatest danger we have is that arrogance, that spiritual arrogance that leads us to complacency, that leads us to overly think that we are good people, that we are fine, that we are not in need of our Savior. That is the greatest spiritual cancer in the church and in the world. It's pride and arrogance. And it creeps into us every day. And it comes into my heart and it's just this cancer that I've got to root out, but I know that it's been killed, right? The vestiges of that cancer still root themselves out, but Christ has killed it. And I know one day, right, that glorious day when all things are made new, that there will be no more pride. There will be no more arrogance in me or in others. And I'm eager for that day. And I long for that day. And I hope for that day rather than hoping for everything else to change around me and me to be able to continue in my little world. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. Lord, we thank you that you humble the proud. And Lord, we admit to you that we are the ones who need to be humbled, that we are the proud And how easy it is to look around and see others that need to be humbled and fail to see our own need of you and our own need to be humbled. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for taking the punishment that was deserved for us, for enduring the humiliation that we deserve and turning it into our glory. Who are we that you would do that for us? that you have secured for us honor and praise and glory forever. And that anything we go through in this life is nothing in comparison with that. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us to confront our own pride and arrogance. This pride that is so infectious and leads to sin and the hiding of sin and not speaking the truth or being a vulnerable and open to one another, Lord, we just, we confess how prideful and arrogant and afraid we are of losing our kingdom, of losing our status in the eyes of man. Lord, help us to see that we have nothing to fear. Help us to be honest with one another. Help us to speak the truth with one another and to speak hope to each other. Lord, continue the work that you have started in each of us through your Spirit. Lord, we are thankful, thankful for our hope in you and that you do not leave us and that you have not left us and that you are coming again for us. Lord, help us to continually look forward to that day with greater excitement and vigor and unity and love as we await your arrival. Lord, be with us. In your name we pray. Amen.